Now hear God's holy word from Song of Songs, chapter 3, continuing our study in this song. Hear God's holy word. This is the Shulamite speaking. This is the, this is the bride. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me, I said. Have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you indeed for your word, and we pray that it would penetrate our hearts today, that it would penetrate our minds, that we would be filled with your thoughts, that we would be filled with the things that you love, that we would learn to despise the things that you hate, but to embrace all of those good things that that you tell us to embrace. And so give us the boldness and the courage to do that. And we pray that you would deliver us from all distraction, you would deliver us from all error. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. What makes a great love story? What do you need in order to have a great love story? Well, you need a man and you need a woman and you need some level of mutual attraction. There must be some something that draws them together, something that pulls them in. But you need something else that may sound counter intuitive, something else that doesn't seem like it fits in a love story, but which is in every great love story. And that is the fact that all of the great love stories that have ever been told have always had an element of drama. To have a great love story, you need danger. There, there, there must be some tension. Going back to antiquity, all the great love stories have this. Or- Orpheus falls in love with Eurydice. She's bitten by a serpent and she dies and descends into the earth. And so uh, Orpheus must descend into the earth to deal with Hades to win her back. Um, but the story doesn't end happily. And uh, well, I won't spoil it for you, but you can go read Orpheus and Eurydice. But the, the medieval romances all feature this almost superhuman heroic knight who follows a strict code of behavior. Uh, and, and he goes on a quest and he defeats monsters and giants and dragons and he wins the favor of the fair maiden. The danger, the peril is part of the story. It's part of the romance. Uh, Robin Hood foils the uh, evil sheriff of Nottingham and attracts Maid Marian. The tension and the, uh, the the tension of the separation and and the their distance before coming together is at the heart of the story. That that is essential for a great for a great romance, a great love story. Nobody would buy a ticket. Nobody would buy a novel about you know a boy and a girl who meet each other and sit on the couch showing each other memes on their phones. That's not that's not a great love story. Uh, you know, ha, 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 the end. I mean, that's, that's all there. There must be some adventure. There has, to be some, there has to be some romance. And so our more modern movie romances have a kind of template that they follow. Boy meets girl, 
but he's a little too dangerous, or maybe he's a little too awkward, or maybe too scruffy, or maybe he's too poor to gain the attention of the girl, to woo her. But through his cunning and, and through his skill, he wins her attention, and they fall in love. She's attracted to him, and he's smitten by her. And then comes the part of the movie that's usually covered by a a music montage, some great love song from the 1980s plays while the lovers go to a park and they buy a hot dog and they fly a kite and he buys her balloons and they, they ride on the carriage, the horse and carriage through the park and then they walk along the beach uh, and, and then everything is happily ever after, right? No, you know as soon as the notes of that song end, something is about to go down. Something is about to happen. There is always a conflict right when you think everything is fine. There's some great big misunderstanding that happens and that breaks them up. He gets angry, she cries, and everything falls apart until the great climax of the film where he does something daring or heroic and he goes out on a limb to prove his undying love for her. You know, like standing in the rain with a boombox over his head, something like that. Um, and, and then they fall in love and then they live happily ever after. The conflict is part of the romance. The, the conflict, the separation is the story. And I just described every great you know, romantic comedy over the last 40, 50 years, right? And we, oh, that's so predictable. It, it doesn't matter. We love it. it that's, it's okay. It's predictable. That's what we like. We like that. And, and we love it. And it's wonderful, again, because any great, beautiful thing is beautiful because it's in line with, with creation. It, it, any great creativity is in line with creation. We see it. It's beautiful because it is a reflection of the story. And so it's a similar story that we get in the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. The romance that they sing about, the lovers sing about this, this relationship in the Song of Songs, that relationship is not without conflict. It's not without drama. Right at the center of this song is the theme of anticipation. This, this operatic story begins with the Shulamite. Remember, her name is just the feminine form of Solomon. Her, she's uh, Mrs. Solomon, Lady Wisdom. Uh, in, in Proverbs. She is Mrs. Solomon. Uh, the, the, the story begins with her solo, her song of longing for the nearness of her beloved. She begins without him. He begins without her. She longs for him. And then and she cries out to him and she asks him to let her know where he's going to be. And playfully, he doesn't draw close. He draws away a little, even while commenting on her loveliness. Um, he, he wants her to come find him. And so she does. She finds him and they exchange words of adoration. He says, you're like a lily among the thorns. She says, you're like an apple tree uh, in a dark forest. You're the one nourishing apple tree uh, among all the, all the trees of the forest. They come together and have a banquet. There's a feast of the eyes. There's a feast of the nostrils, lots of incense, lots of smells. There's a feast of the, of the taste buds, certainly. But the first narrative cycle ends where we finished last week, where we stopped. And it ends with this curious phrase in chapter 2, verse 7, where the Shulamite, the woman, uh, says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, she sings to her chorus of ladies-in-waiting, she sings to her friends, her sisters, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. This phrase, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases, is confusing to commentators and translators. They scratch their heads at this and um, there's a lot of ink has been used up in trying to figure out what this phrase means. But what's um, really 
it shows us this is an important phrase and something we need to figure out is because it, it is repeated two more times. The same phrase is repeated three times in the Song of Songs. So it could be, and one uh, good, I think, uh, or at least consistent application or, or translation of this phrase would be, do not stir up or awaken my love, my beloved, until he pleases. That it is translated in, at least in the New King James, it's translated it. Well, that's a masculine pronoun, until he pleases. Do not stir up or awaken my love until he pleases. In other words, she's calling to the lady, she's calling to the house, let him sleep. Don't wake him up. Let him get up when he's ready. Don't, don't stir him. And, and if that reading is accurate, or if it's even close, then it fits with one of the principal themes of this whole book, which is the woman's anticipation for intimate communion with her beloved, which is put off or postponed by the beloved's absence or his rest, his sleeping. There is this constant theme through these, through these songs of delayed gratification, of delayed blessing. If the beloved is sleeping and we don't wake him, we have to anticipate the blessing of his fellowship whenever he's ready to share it with us. And that's, that's the thing that she says. Don't, don't wake him until he's ready to get up. Um, he's with us, he's here, but we have to wait on his timing for him to rise and act. And of course, drawing out further from this book, this is a theme throughout the whole Bible, right? There, there, are, there are psalms about God's being seemingly absent. Psalms that say, why have you forsaken me? Or psalms that say, do not hide your face from me. Or will you hear when I call out to you? The, this, 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 uh, these, these psalms of separation, these psalms of longing for his presence are all throughout the, the Psalter. But the matter of waiting on the Lord is a common theme throughout the prophets, particularly in Isaiah. John read from 2 Thessalonians today where, where Paul is uh, exhorting the church to wait patiently and in a, in a steadfast way on the Lord's coming. So, so this, this is the, the scriptures are shot through with this theme of anticipation and waiting on the drawing near of the Lord. And historically, in the, the story of Israel's relationship to Yahweh, if you think about it, is one of God's moving near to them but then moving out, right? He, he comes and fills the tabernacle, but later he leaves the tabernacle. He takes it apart and he doesn't dwell with them any longer there in that way. But he comes to the temple. He comes to the temple and dwells there, but later abandons it. Jesus comes and tabernacles among us, but then he ascends to the right hand of the Father and he promises to return. So uh, this, this repeated pattern of God moving in to share communion, but then moving out with a promise to return. And, and I know in the back of your heads, you're thinking about Deuteronomy 31. Twice uh, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Hebrews 13 uh, is quoted again, uh, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Um, how, what, what light does that cast on this movement throughout history? Well, that indeed, God never forsakes. He never abandons his people. He, he never, he never uh, leaves them to their own devices. He always, he always moves out with a promise to return, and he is always with them in some sense. His word is still with them 
today. Jesus is not physically present with us, but his spirit is with us. And so um, even in keeping with that theme, he hasn't abandoned his people. He hasn't completely cut us off, though we sense that reality in our own lives, don't we? We sense there are times where it seems like the Lord is very near to us and we have intimate communion with him. And there are times also where it feels like he's very distant. Now, now, in some of those occasions where we think that he's distant, we could chalk that up to our own sin, our own coldness. We are out of fellowship with him. We are aloof to his Holy Spirit and, and his leading. But, but there's more to it than just that. There's, there's also God's habit of drawing his people out to follow him the way that the beloved does to the Shulamite. He draws out and he says, I'm out here. Come chase me. Come find me. Come look for me. He does this repeatedly. Seek me is what he's saying. Come find me. And there's a real sense in which God is pleased when we go looking for him. He's pleased uh, to, to see us want to be near him so bad that we have to get up and go out where he is. But back to this idea of the beloved sleeping and not waking him. In Psalm 78, which if I could read the whole thing, we could see so many parallels with, and I, uh, if you have time this afternoon or later this week, look at Psalm 78 and see how many parallels there are with the Song of Songs. But we have this description in Psalm 78 of Yahweh's wrestling with Israel when she was in the wilderness wandering. Uh, he blesses them with deliverance. He gives them food. He gives them water. He gives them shoes that don't wear out. He gives them clothes that don't wear out. He gives them all manner of provision. And they respond not with thanksgiving, not with gratitude, but by pulling away from him. They pull away from him in discontentment and idolatry. So the Psalm says, God greatly abhorred Israel. He forsook the tabernacle. This this is all in the Psalm. This is the Psalm's language. And he gave his people over to their enemies. And then when he does that, the maidens and the widows weep. Notice it's specifically the cry of the women that sets up what is about to happen next. It's the women that the Shulamite says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't wake him up. Don't, don't make any racket. In Psalm 78, it's the cry of the women that wake the Lord up. The very next verse says, then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies, and he put them to perpetual reproach. So Yahweh rises up from sleep, as it were. God is not sleeping. This is poetic language that describes the way that he comes. He comes as a mighty man who's been sleeping off his victory party. He had a lot to drink when he celebrated his victory and he laid down to rest and he got up the next morning. He woke and when he wakes, he roars. He roars and comes and sorts out his enemies And then he sorts out his own people. He judges his people before returning to communion with them. Who else woke out of a deep sleep? Well, Adam did. Adam woke out of a deep sleep. He woke up. He enjoyed his wife. He loved his wife, but he didn't defend his wife. And he didn't lead his wife. When Yahweh wakes up out of a deep sleep, he Yes, he enjoys his wife, he loves her, but he defends her and he disciples her. Yahweh does when he wakes up. So in that Psalm's imagery, there's perhaps another reason she wants to let him sleep. Why she says three times throughout this song, she says, let him sleep, let him sleep, don't wake him up. Maybe we don't want to wake, maybe there's a reason we don't want to wake him up. Uh, If we wake him early and we're out of sorts, if we wake him early and we're out of fellowship or we're in sin or we've broken the covenant, if we wake him up, 
He'll be like a mighty warrior who's been sleeping off his drink and he'll awake roaring. And he won't just roar at his enemies. He will roar at us. It's a good thing that he's sleeping. For now, it's a mercy, right? That's why you don't wake dad from his nap, right, kids? You just, you just know this. This is built in. You don't wake dad up from his nap because he'll get up roaring and he'll come sort you out. And just as <laughs> Yahweh does. So, um, that's maybe maybe we let him and for his, it's a merciful thing that he's at rest now so that so that we can get things squared away and get ready for his coming near to us so we can prepare ourselves for his drawing near to us so the middle of chapter two where we left off last week uh comes a new song of the shulamite they are they are separated again, but he comes to her. And, and as we read this, uh, he's, he's, like a, um, he's like a superman bounding over the mountains. He's leaping. He's got this superhuman strength. And when you're in love, it really feels like you, you've got this superhuman strength, right? You're alive in a way that you felt, you've never felt before. The song is also full of springtime imagery. The earth breaks forth in new life as he comes to her, to be with her, to rescue her and take her away. Why does she need rescuing? Well, remember in the first chapter, she says, I'm, I'm being put to forced labor. My brothers are making me tend to their vineyard and I can't take care of my own. And that is a parallel to Israel's being in bondage in Egypt and Yahweh being stirred up by her cry to come and deliver her. So, so listen to this next song of the beloved from, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the next song of the Shulamite, the woman from chapter two beginning in verse eight, she sings. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He is looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice, just as Yahweh gazed through and looked at the door on the, uh, um, the, the blood on the doorposts uh, as he was calling them out of out of Egypt. My beloved spoke and he said to me, rise up my love, my fair one, and come away just as Yahweh did with Israel. He called them out of Egypt, rise up, come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs and the, and the vines with the tender grapes give a good smell. Rise up my love, my fair one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Remember, it was in the, he, he brings them to uh, the cliffs of the rock, right? He brings them to Mount Sinai. And it's there that God says he spoke with Moses face to face. And that's exactly the, uh, what is being put out here in, in poetic form. So uh, uh, again, all of this uh, springtime imagery uh, is consistent with the new creation imagery of the, of the Exodus. Now the chorus of brothers pipe up. Remember, we've got a chorus of men and we've got a chorus of women and the, the boys sing. They say in verse 15, catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines for our vines have tender grapes. The woman is continually identified with the vineyard. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 128 says, your wife is a fruitful vine. Uh, throughout the scriptures, uh, uh, vineyards and femininity and productivity and, and fruitfulness are all wrapped up together. So she's a vineyard. Um, and, and there's a problem though. We have foxes running through the vineyard, spoiling the vines, taking the grapes here and there, running everywhere, stealing the fruit like men who scamper around grabbing whatever fruit of female affection, whatever female attention they can get, spoiling the vines before moving on instead of attaching themselves to one vine. And so the choir of brothers tell the woman 
to catch a fox. Grab one. Get, get, get one of these. And, and it's in this way that, you know, godly righteous women have this power over men to make him want to be caught, to make him want to be tied down, to devote himself to a future with her. So Solomon is a, is a fox who's been caught. She, and we see this in the very next verse. She, she responds to them in verse 16. My beloved is mine and I am his. He feeds his flock among the lilies. And then she sings to her beloved until the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Turn my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag upon the mountains of Bether. We don't know where Bether is, but uh, the word means separation. So come aside, my, my beloved is mine and I am his. Um, he, turn, turn my beloved and let's go to the mountains of separation. Let's go somewhere where it's just me and you and there's no distraction. So there's this, um, this, this sense also in, in our relationship with our Lord that, that we belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to us. We're separated out for each other. He dwells in us, we dwell in him. In worship, we consume his body and blood spiritually, but we're also incorporated into him. So there's this mutual indwelling, this mutual consumption that, that is reflected here. Chapter three now begins with another separation and increased anticipation on the part of the Shulamite. And this is where I, this is what I read at the very beginning. She is asleep and she wakes up and finds out that he's gone. He's not, he's not with her. So she goes out into the city to find him. She goes looking for him. She rushes out in the streets alone, looking for her beloved. She asks the white, uh, the, the night watchman for help, but they haven't seen him. And right after she leaves the night watchman, she finds him and brings him home to her mother's house. And once again, she pleads with everyone, let him sleep and don't wake him. The absence of the beloved is a call to go and find him. She wakes up and he's not there. What do you do? You've got to go find him. You've got to go be where he is. Get up out of bed, even though you're alone, even though it's night, even if no one else knows who you're looking for or where to find him, you go looking. As long as Israel is asleep, as long as she's floating along in a dreamlike state, she's content assuming that the Lord is right there with her. But when she wakes and finds out that he's not there with, uh, with her, her duty is to go find him. And again, this happens repeatedly in the scriptures. Yahweh fills his tabernacle, but then one day she wakes up and he's not in his tabernacle anymore. One day she wakes up and he's not in his temple anymore. Eventually she wakes up and she goes out to find him. And she asks the Pharisees. They don't know where he is. They ask the Sadducees. They don't know where he is. She, she asks the scribes. They don't know. These are the watchmen of the city. They don't know where he is. They, don't, they can't help you. I don't know where he is. I can't find you. I, I don't know who you're talking about. I, I've never seen him. They aren't looking for him, but she keeps looking until she finds Jesus, until she finds her Messiah. Um, I am... I'm, I'm skipping really quickly between man and woman, Solomon and Shulamite, Israel and Yahweh, Jesus and his church. And I, and I hope I'm not um, changing gears too quickly. Um, maybe I'll, I'll try to slow down on those gear changes. I'm thinking, I, I went through several shifts right there, but I, the, all of these things are layered right on top of each other, right? You, you can see, um, and, and I think, at least I pray that um, you, you can see how these things are just piled, piled up together. So um, her search, as she goes out into the streets at night to go find him, her search has this edge of danger to it. This is the, this is the drama of the romance. 
Uh, back in Proverbs, there's a contrast. Solomon, the same Solomon, contrasts Lady Folly from Lady Wisdom. Um, Lady Folly is the seductress, right? Lady Folly lurks around the streets searching for a man to grab and kiss. Now in Song of Songs, Lady Wisdom, Mrs. Solomon, is out in the streets looking for a man. And, and you think, oh my goodness, she looks like Lady Folly, right? The lady, that's what Lady Folly does. But her pursuit is a holy pursuit. So she's willing to look foolish. She's even willing for her own motivations to be misunderstood in her pursuit of her beloved. Someone ignorant of what's going on might assume that she's just being loose and sinful, just, just as the Pharisees were always accusing Jesus of breaking covenant, right? They, they were wrong, but they accuse him of that. There's so many stories in the Bible that are just like this. Women who are willing to look foolish or even a little scandalous in order to secure the blessing of the covenant. I mentioned last week Tamar who put on the veil of a prostitute um, and, and went to where Judah was in order to secure the blessing of the covenant. Uh, just as Ruth was willing to be, uh, a, 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 do what might assume to be a scandalous thing by sitting at Boaz's feet at the threshing floor for him to cover her with the wing of his garment. Oh my goodness, that looks very scandalous. But she's willing to do this to secure the blessing of the covenant. Again, like the Syrophoenician woman who grabs a hold of Jesus and won't let go to secure the blessing of the covenant. Each of these women were not afraid to appear foolish or silly. They were not too proud to humble themselves and do whatever it was that, that had to be done to secure the blessing of the covenant. And so it pleases God when Israel, when the church, when a believer displays this kind of fiery passion, when, when you go out to find him and grab him and do not let go. That's what she says in verse four of chapter three. I, when, when I found him, I held him and would not let him go. We, we tend to have this kind of cavalier detachment, this aloofness in our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we don't want to be a fanatic, right? And we don't want to be some kind of crazy, wild, you know, nutso person with crazy eyes. You know, we, we, want, to, we, want, to be, we want to be decent. We want to be respectable. We want to be, you know, kind of, kind of civilized. We want to be, want to be normal. But, but that's not the kind of love that is displayed by the woman as she goes and seeks her beloved or many other events that we can look at in the scriptures. Um, and and, and what, is, what does this look like? What is this, what is this, uh, how does this manifest our, uh, itself in, in, our, in our relationship to the Lord Jesus? Well, it starts with some pretty simple things. I mean, do you talk to him? Do you talk to the Lord Jesus? Do you pray? Or does that feel weird to you? Does it feel weird to you? Does it feel awkward to pray? Um, there was a time in my life as a teenager where it really felt awkward to pray. You know, I didn't want to be too spiritual, right? You know, it's, it's not cool. But, um, do, you pray, do you pray without ceasing? Do you, have a, do you have a day-long dialogue with the Lord Jesus? Do you have a time every day where you hear him speak to you? Are you, are you spending time in the scriptures, listening to his voice? through his word. Is public worship the most important event of your week where nothing, nothing comes in the way, nothing gets in the way of your appointment with God? That's what it looks like, at least in part, to grab him and do not let him go, even to the point of it looking a little embarrassing, even to the point of it looking a little bit scandalous in the way that you were so passionate to grab him and not let him go. 
It's the kind of love she displays. And the Shulamite's passion is rewarded with a wedding. She's been delivered. There's been a pledge of love. But now uh, that relationship is about to be formalized. Up until this point, it hasn't been formalized. Despite the scenes of him, uh, of him sleeping and her seeing him sleep, their union has not been consummated to this point. So chapter 3, uh, we have the wedding procession. Verse 6 of chapter 3. Who is this coming out of the wilderness? Like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the merchants' fragrant powders. Behold, it is Solomon's couch, with 60 valiant men around it of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man has his sword on his thigh because of fear in the night. Of the wood of Lebanon, Solomon the king made himself a palanquin or a big throne. He, he made its pillars of silver, its support of gold, its seat of purple, its interior paved with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day of the gladness of his heart. Right away, you can catch all of this mixed um, imagery of Solomon's kingly procession and the procession of the Ark of the Covenant up out of the wilderness into the land. There's pillars of smoke, there's myrrh and incense, uh, frankincense. I think we looked at that last week. The throne is surrounded by an army. And, and then the throne, as she's watching, the throne is glorified before her eyes. Suddenly there's wood from Lebanon, there's pillars of gold, there's supports, there's an interior. Uh, so the historical narrative is fast forwarded, it's compressed. We go from mobile ark to stable building, standing structure quickly. The, so the wedding looks like the construction of the temple, and the construction of the temple looks like uh, a wedding. It's described like a wedding. The beloved is coming to set up house with his bride. You notice also in these verses you have gold, you have frankincense, you have myrrh, things that you find in the temple, yes, but also gifts that the Gentiles bring to Jesus, the even better temple. See, everything we read here all gets elevated with Jesus. And notice that in all of these separations and all of these reunions throughout the song, each time that the beloved appears, each time he comes back to her, it's more glorious and better and wonderful than the last time he appeared. And so it is with the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Every time it gets better and better and better. This passage draws our attention to the adornment, the pomp, the ceremony of the wedding of the king and his queen. And we might ask, why all this, why all this ceremony? Why all of this to do? Why do we celebrate intimate sexual unions of men and women? Why do we celebrate this with a high public ceremony? And of course, even as I say that, I recognize that ever-decreasing popularity of of such a requirement in our generation. The vast majority of sexual unions today are profoundly unceremonious, right? But it hasn't always been this way. Sexual union in every culture has always been a high occasion of ritual feasting. And the weddings in the Bible approve that connection, that when men and women come together, it's time to do something big. It's time to celebrate this publicly. Because in biblical societies, we take this opportunity to recognize publicly that God created male and female. And in the coming together of man and woman, we are testifying that God is putting something together. God is making something here. He's putting together a new thing that was never in the world before. This man and this woman are now being taken and, and being uh, uh, reconstituted into one new 
flesh. This is, marriage is a public institution. It is an open covenant that we call the world and the church to witness and we call call for God to bless it. It's not a private handshake. It's not this thing we've minimalized, that we've boiled down to an issue of consent. That's the, that's the touchstone, right, of all of our sexual dynamics and of all the politics surrounding it. It all boils down to consent, right? Is it good or is it bad? Well, is there consent? And there's all this confusion and head-scratching and hand-wringing over the issue of consent. Here's a tip that will keep everybody out of trouble. How about this? How about we try this? Unless someone has consented in public before God and everybody, you can't sleep with them. How about that? Unless they have consented before God in the form of a vow, in a wedding vow, then they haven't consented, right? And that's it. They haven't consented. But you see, we are just uh, digging a pit um, as a society. And we've separated sex from ceremony. And by separating sex from ceremony, we have destroyed and cheapened both in our society. So as we look forward, and I do look forward to the weddings and the celebrations uh, of, of our children, let's keep this in mind that it's our goal to have a groom and a bride uh, joined together publicly in a high and holy ceremony in the grandest style available to us to take solemn vows publicly together and to have a feast with the best food and the best wine you can afford to recover something that we've lost. That, that sexual uh, union is not based on cheap promises made in the backseat of a Honda. It is a public, open declaration that God is doing something. It's not just something between you and your sweetheart. It's not just between you and me. Though we say, you know, I don't, I don't, need, a, I don't need a piece of paper to prove that I love you. Buddy, you need a piece of paper at least, <laughs> at least a piece of paper. Because that's a contract, that's a covenant. And you need a feast and you need to do this before God and your family. You, you, you don't need and women should not put up with, ladies do not put up with uh, that kind of foolishness and that kind of wickedness. Well, we have these wonderful, uh, this wonderful scene of a wedding and now that we've had the wedding, now that the fox has been caught, as it were, we, we've had the public ceremony and now it's the wedding night and we see the intimacy increases. The, this is now this, the first long solo of Solomon. This is his first long song. We're just going to read this. I'm going to make a couple of quick observations about it um, and we're going to stop at the, end of, at the end of this chapter, this song of the beloved. Um, so he sings to her on his wedding night, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Whether the, he's talking about the clarity of a dove's eyes or the shape of a dove's eyes, which if you look at um, some ancient paintings or um, mosaics, you see uh, the, the makeup that women wore made their eyes look you know, pointed and kind of like a dove's eyes. I, maybe that's his... Uh, Maybe that's his statement. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn sheep which have come up from the washing, every one of which bears twins, and none is barren among them. Your lips are like a strand of scarlet, and your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a piece of pomegranate. He's following an ancient form of poetry called a blazon or a wasif. And we're going to look at these uh, next week. We're not going to spend time on it today, but he's following an ancient form of poetry where you compare features of your beloved to other beautiful things and and he's following that um, 
that order. He says, your neck is like the Tower of David, built for an armory, on which hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. This is the first time he's praised her breasts, which means it's the first time he's seen them. This is the, this is the, there's a chastity, there's a purity up until, until this point, and an increasing intimacy with this song. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee away, I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. That word spot is the same word as uh, blemish. We have unspotted sacrifices. We want uh, sacrifices without blemish. The priest cannot have any blemish or any spot. That's the same word he uses for her. The goal of Jesus is to, is to mature his church to the point where there's no blemish in her, where there's no spot. And this is the Shulamite on her wedding day. There's no spot in her. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Senir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, with one link of your necklace. How fair is your love, my sister, my spouse. How much better than wine is your love and the scent of your perfumes than all spices. Your lips, O oh my spouse, drip as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. There's milk and honey. There's this, uh, the, the, it, sometimes the song shifts gears faster than I can. You know, the land, Israel, the church um, are, all, are all put together here. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, fragrant henna with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, all of this sensory information, all of these smells, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. And then she sings to him, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden, that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. And then he sings, I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drank wine with my milk. Wine and milk. I'm two-fisting. I've got my wine for rest. I've got my milk for strength. I've got everything. I've got everything I need right here. And then he sings to his friends, Eat, O friends. Drink, yes, drink deeply, O oh, beloved ones. Well, um, we uh, have here this, um, this statement on both of their parts. They both invest the same level of energetic, passionate effort into building up the marriage. Both of them call to each other. She calls out to him. He calls out to her. He adorns her with praise. She adorns him with praise. There are no one-way streets in this song. There's no one-way streets in this relationship, and there's no one-way streets in Christian marriage. Each one in the song is working to win the other, speaking edifying, comforting, encouraging words to the other. One-way streets get exhausting for both husbands and wives. You never want to be the only one putting effort into the marriage. If it's never reciprocated, you lose heart. Don't take your beloved for granted. Or like Israel, you may wake up and find that they're not there. Uh, like the Shulamite wakes up and he's not there. And then, which is, which is what happens in the very next scene. He gets up and he leaves again and she has to go find, 
She has to go find him again. But now let's, let's meditate just briefly on this theme of the bride's waiting as well as the absence and the delay for this scene that is their union and their, uh, their consummation. She has this anticipation for him to come and deliver her, for him to protect and provide, to establish her, to defeat her enemies, to enthrone her beside him. As much as she wants these things, the Shulamite says three times, do not awaken my love until he pleases. I want these things but I want them on his timing. I want it, but I don't want it to be rushed. There's a wrong time and a right time. How many times in Jesus's ministry do we see him delaying things or putting off things un until it was time? He says, it's not my time. Uh, when his mother wants him to take care of the wine at the wedding, what does he say? He puts her off and he says, I'll get around to it. It's not, it's not, it's not my time yet. Jesus was delaying doing certain things and delaying saying certain things to avoid a showdown in Jerusalem before he'd gotten all of his work done. Remember also when Lazarus was sick, he could have come immediately, but he waited. He delayed. Mary and Martha anxiously anticipate his coming, but Jesus doesn't share their urgency. He had his own timing and his own design and his own plans. He tells a parable in Matthew chapter 25 about the 10 virgins waiting for the bridegroom. Again, if we had time to study that parable, we could lay it right over the top of the Song of Solomon and see so many parables there, uh, parallels. But in the parable, uh, there are 10 virgins waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. Five foolish virgins didn't take any oil for their lamps. They go out and they fall asleep. Five wise virgins take enough oil to get through the whole night. They, they, they don't know when he's coming. Better get ready. Better be prepared. This could take a while. Uh, this, could, this could take all night. And so they wait on him and those who are prepared are rewarded. So how often do we pray these prayers like we read in the Psalms, like we heard in, uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians? How often do we pray this prayer, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come Jesus, sort this thing out. Come deliver me from this. Come reign over this situation. Come fix this. Come fix him. Come fix her. Fix that. How long, O oh Lord, will you delay? This prayer is good and right, but do not grow weary in praying it. Do not grow weary in waiting because it is of a certainty that he is coming. He is coming but on his own time. Also, don't forget the prophet Amos, who said, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. Don't you know that he, if he comes to sort things out, he's coming as a mighty man awakened from his sleep. And if he comes to sort things out, he's going to sort you out too. Don't think that he's going to come fix everything but you. Don't think he's going to come judge everything and everybody but you you better be ready to be dealt with as well. But take enough oil when you wait and pack a lunch because it may be, it may be a while. So we call and we pray and we wait with this in mind. Don't despair. Don't quit praying. Know that this is what the Lord does. He wants his beloved bride to wait. In spite of this, we know by faith, he's not forgotten us. He hasn't forsaken his bride. He hasn't gone to look for another one. The, the Lord doesn't have Solomon's later problems with infidelity. And we'll, we'll get around to that because I know you're thinking in the back of your mind, wait a minute, where's this fit in the timeline? We, we know about Solomon's later infidelity. But, but the Lord is not like that. He is a one woman God. 
He has his eyes set on one bride. And because of that, his absence is deliberate. He is distant in some ways and at some times because he wants us to get up out of bed and go look for him. He's on the move. He's changing the world. He's transforming it by his Holy Spirit. And if you stay in the same spot, sometimes you get left behind. So get up and come out and find him. Go where he is. Grab him and do not let him go. So people of God cultivate this kind of tenacious wrestling faith, a risky faith, a fiery, passionate fighting faith that's not worried about being embarrassed, but a wor- oh, oh, that is only worried about him giving you his covenant blessing because we cannot live without it. And say, I'm not going to let you go until I get it. I don't mind looking silly. I don't mind looking like a fool. I am not letting you go. He pulls away so that his coming again is more glorious. The reunion is better than the previous union. It gets better from glory to glory to glory to glory until one day we will all be united to him in such a way where there's no sin and there's no death and there's nothing to destroy our fellowship with him. Until then, we wait on our beloved and we anticipate his coming. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus, and thank you for all the ways that we can reflect on him through this song, and we ask you as we do so to develop patience in our waiting for our Lord to sort things out, to sort out the world, to sort out the church, to sort out us. Father, uh, as we wait, uh, Father, give us this steadfast hope and faith and resolve to hold on to him and not let go uh, where, where we catch him. And so, Father, strengthen us and give us peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.